0: Okay, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word this morning. We will be in Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 5. Now, this is the last week uh, of our series entitled The Heart of Evangelism, uh, which is based on Jaron Barr's book by that very same title. And you know, we've seen throughout our time, six or seven weeks together in this uh, series, that each and every Christian, not just uh, special evangelists or people that just uh, do it as a vocation, but each and every Christian is called to live on mission in every sphere of their life. No matter where they go, at the grocery store, in their vocation, in their homes, we're called to live on mission for Jesus, that our life should reflect the beauty, the characteristics of who God is, that our life should be marked by grace and mercy and compassion and love for those around us. A few weeks ago, Chuck talked about how we are called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, because sin has brought in decay. And darkness. So Christ's church is called to go into those places to bring light, to bring salt for healing and restoration. Last week we saw that we are called to love one another, that the heart of evangelism really is love because we see God's love is poured out to his people through the bloodshed of his son Jesus. And when that love is poured into his people, God's call for his people is to pour that out to one another. And today, as we turn to the last week in our series, the theme that we're looking at is unity in the body of Christ. If we're called to do all these things, to be on mission, to be an evangelistic presence in West El Paso, we need to be unified in Christ that often, if you're anything like me, you know that division happens very quickly in any type of body of people. We're humans. We're fallen humans. And so this call is proactive for the church to say, there is error in your heart. There is sin in your heart. You are prone to division. So let's guard against it before it happens. And in our text today, um, we're looking at this really in a corporate manner. Like the church as a whole. I would actually apply this to our church as a whole. Us together as Christ the King. What is the unifying theme going to be? And I would say it is Christ and Him crucified. And we need to be unified under that. And the Apostle Paul shows us that that begins with humility. So we're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you now, asking for your help. Spirit, move amongst this place. We know that we often have hard hearts towards you, that we want our own way, that we think we have it together. And yet, if we are honest, we know that not to be true. And Father, we pray that we would be honest in this moment. That we are prone to division. We are prone to conflict. We are prone to self-centeredness, each one of us. And Father, we pray that we would gaze upon Jesus. was not only humble, but self-sacrificing for the good of others, for the good of his church, for us here in this place. That we would reflect on the beauty of your son, Jesus. And it would stir our affections for him and this world that you have created. God, be with us now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So you may have heard of or experienced yourself, I would actually say probably everyone in the room has heard of or experienced some sort of church division. A church splitting over this issue or that issue, conflict arising in a church over this issue or that issue. And I read about a story that came through the Dallas newspaper a few years back. I'm going to read you this story about a church that went through some conflict. When a certain church in Dallas became divided, the rift was so bitter that each side instituted a lawsuit seeking to dispose the other from their church's property. This despite Scripture's warning against taking such matters before public courts in 1 Corinthians 6. So this story, of course, hit the Dallas newspaper and garnered considerable interest from the readers. The judge wisely ruled that it was not the province of the court to decide such matters until the case had been heard before the denomination's church court. So the dispute was remanded to the ecclesiastical court where eventually decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one of the sides. And the losers... Withdrew and formed another church, Church Growth the American Way, right? I'm gonna say it bluntly. I think this was a that was actually quoted in the Dallas newspaper, it's a tragedy, right? It was reported in the Dallas newspaper, no doubt with some delight, that the church court had traced the trouble to its source. Maybe it was theology we're thinking, maybe it was something heinous. But the trouble began when at a church dinner. An elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. This is a true story. Church hostesses, make sure that you always serve heaping elder portions to the elders and deacons, or you might come before Judge Judy. We laugh, right, about this, and it is a true story. And our laughing probably does mask some sadness in our hearts, right? That we've seen churches have division over the carpet color, over a slice of ham, over very silly things that could have been resolved, right? And I would say in any, any corporate body of people, division often occurs because people are more self-interested in their, in their self than they are in the interests of other people. And I would actually say that is true often in the church as well. The divisions often arise because we are more concerned with our own interests than the interests of others. The conflict can often arise in churches without us really being able to grab onto it before it gets moving fast. So this text is helping the church to be proactive in preventing this from happening. To look look at our own hearts, each and every one of us in the room, you and me alike, to see how we are prone to this. We are prone to conflict because we love ourselves, right? And we think that we know what is best. But in our text, as we close on this series in evangelism, for us to be a church who is evangelistic-minded, to be on mission together, we need to be unified in Jesus and nothing else. We need to be unified in Him together. So the big idea that we're looking at today is that the church must be unified in Christ For the advancement of the gospel. The church must be unified in Christ for the advancement of the gospel. We're looking at three things. Uh, First, the same mind. This is verses 1 through 2. The same humility. Verses 3 through 4. And then the same Savior. uh, Verse 5. So we need to uh, begin with uh, the context of where we are in the Bible. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, this book of uh, Philippians to the the church in Philippi. A church that he dearly loved. We see that uh, laced throughout the language that is used in this uh, letter. the end of chapter 1, you know, we're beginning chapter 2. So at the beginning, end of chapter 1, Paul is speaking about the church being unified in Jesus when they're undergoing persecution from the outside. External pressure that is coming in towards the church. And his command to them is stand firm in one spirit. Stand firm in Christ because you are united together. This is the end of chapter one. So, when we turn the page to chapter two, it's the same theme, picking up with the same thing. He's calling the church to be united in Jesus. But instead of external pressures coming from the outside, persecution, he's now addressing internal strife. So, when there is division amongst you within the church, look to Jesus. Because he is the one you are unified under. Remember I mentioned from the get-go that it's it's really, really, really important for texts like this, for us to come to it with lenses of a corporate body together. You and I live in an era of an individualized mind. We think about everything in life through an individualistic eye. But the Bible actually often thinks about the body as a corporate body. And it's hard for us in the West to think in this way. But I want us to think the bigger picture as a corporate body. What sort of witness are we called to be here in El Paso? So, in our text today, Paul begins this section with saying that if there is encouragement in Christ, then. Go on and do this. Okay, what you can't see in, the, origi- in the, the English that is in the original language is that verses 1 through 4 are actually one long sentence. It's kind of like what we think about in, in English if it was a run-on sentence. The beginning of verse 1, he says, So if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in God, any participation in the Spirit, if this is true, then this is how you should act. Okay, it's an if-then logical sentence, the whole first four verses together, okay? But what many theologians will point to in this section is that this is a beloved church of Paul, okay? He knows these people, probably by name, many of them. He knows their story. He knows how they came to Christ. He has witnessed with his own eye their faith and how it has shown out in their life. So he has a strong belief that these people are believers, so, and I would say that for many of you in this room, I have so much faith that you follow Jesus and you have for years past my own life, right? So in this text for them and for us, instead of if this is true, I would say since this is true, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have love from the Father, since you have participation in the Spirit, then this is what we're called to, okay? So a since, then, then structure is what we're looking at. Okay, so let's look at the first point. This is the same mind, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. He says this. Wow, I wish I was in there. Huh? Sounds fun. (laughs) Told you it was going to be a party. As we all fall asleep. Okay, wake up. We're going to have a party in here too. Let's talk about unity. (laughs) Okay, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So I want you to see, he talks about three main comforts that come from you being a Christian. Some of the things that are benefits to you. Not only the work of Christ, but in your daily life. Right? And despite conflict, from the outside or the inside, these truths remain truth. First, he says, You have encouragement or comfort in Christ. That you have hope for the future. Despite anything that's going on hard in your life, there is hope that one day all things will be made new again. Despite the trying circumstances that you go through, you have hope. There is encouragement or comfort in Christ as our reigning king. Second, he says there is comfort in love. This could be understood as soulless in Christ or comfort amidst worry. This church is talking first about persecution from the outside, now strife on the inside, and there is probably some sort of worry. So he's saying you have comfort in Jesus despite anything else, right? There any, everyone else will let you down. The people inside your church will let you down. The people on the outside will let you down. Your spouse, your best friend, your mom, your dad, whoever it is, they will let you down. But you can have comfort in Christ amidst worry. We talked about this last week, that we as Christ's church have first been loved by God. That's the only way that we're even called to give love to other people. It's because a love has been poured into our heart. So this love, it gives us comfort that moves even amidst our worry. So third aspect is that we have participation in the Spirit. And this is a very key phrase for us in the idea of unification together, right? This aspect binds the church together corporately. That the church is both united to Christ by the Spirit and united to one another. I've tried to explain this idea to my kids, right? And they're under the age of 11, which means that they can't think outside of um, something that's concrete. This is very hard for them to understand. But I keep telling them, like... When their friends come over and their friends from church or I know they're believers, they're like your sister in Christ. And they're like, that's like my sister. And they kind of use it too freely because they don't quite understand it. But it's that idea, right? And we forget that, that our brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are close with your own siblings, he says, this is how you are united to one another. Like a brother or a sister, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. This original word for fellowship gets at the idea of close association involving mutual interests. That I bet I would not know a single one of you in this room, except for my parents who are sitting right here on the front row, if I was not united to Jesus. That look around this room and you see a very diverse population of people. And our one common goal The thing that brings us together is Jesus and him crucified. And the Spirit unites a people together with a common goal, with mutual interests for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. Verse 2 goes on. He says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, Paul is like their pastor. He was like the planting pastor of this church, right? And his joy is tied to this church flourishing, to the unification of this church in Christ. He's saying, complete my joy by doing what? What does he say? By being of the same mind. We see the Apostle Paul in this verse actually repeats that phrase and really means the same thing three or four times in a row. Like he's just saying it over and over again. Since you have comfort in Christ, be of the same mind, be in full accord with one another. So his urgent appeal for them is for their unity in the body of Christ. One theologian says this about this verse. The church is not to waver from advancing the gospel, but to do so they must get their act together. The murmuring and bickering must cease. They must come to a common mind about life together in Christ and must show the same mutual love For one another. So, Paul is removing them, some, right, from this individual idea. We can do that today. And look to the bigger picture of the corporate witness of Jesus to the community in which we serve, right? That we've been united in Christ. You and me have, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we are. So, he's saying, don't let these small disagreements hinder the advancement of the gospel. Now, in this exhortation to be of one mind, Paul is not saying that each one of us in the room need to have the same opinion about each and every issue in your life, that there's going to be differing opinions in many parts of life, and that's normal, and that will happen. It will continue to happen. In our own time, we think about differing opinions on education, finances, politics, music, Take the lit, whatever. Whatever you want to say here. There's so many opinions about so many different issues. So Paul is not calling the church to have the same opinions or interests in these different things. You can have your own opinions and interests. But the church needs to be unified under their main purpose. And their main purpose is the advancement of the gospel. The growth in a Christian and calling those outside of the church to faith. Right? Right? You know, Chuck has talked with many of you for many years about this cone of certainty, right? Essentially, the higher up it goes, the more important it is in your life. And what, this, what Paul is saying in here, here is often our interests and our opinions that really do differ from one another creep to the very top and say, I'm going to die on this hill of education, of finance, of politics, of music, whatever it may be, I'm going to die on this hill right here. But Paul is helping us to see it. No, it's the gospel alone at the top. It is, that is the umbrella under which we are together. So the church needs to be unified in purpose and disposition. This should reorient our priorities, our opinions, our interests in our life. The, advance, the advancement of the gospel is the primary purpose. So he's saying here, let us be focused on that, have the same mind, being in full accord with one another, making sure the gospel is front and center, at the top of the cone, in the, the center of your life. The thing is that there can be many different opinions that cause strife and division in a church. We laughed a minute ago about a piece, piece of ham. I would be upset about that too, Right? like a small piece of ham for me look at me my daughters are like i don't want this ham right you can understand we laugh about it but like but there are many opinions like legitimate opinions and interests that do cause strife in a church and in many areas of life the thing is the the gospel i would say the lord calls us to apply the gospel to many different spheres of life and when we do that many of us will have different outcomes that may, means you do this or this. And they could be very different lifestyle choices, right? So the, when he, what he's getting at here, not, not always to have that same application for everything in life, but what Paul is saying is that those things are important. The gospel application to different spheres of your life are very important, but they are not primary for the church. Let us think of the corporate witness of the body, and we are called to make the gospel Known to the world. That is our primary purpose. So we need to make sure that those differing opinions and interests are lower in this cone. They're less important than Jesus and him crucified. That we're called to have the same mind with the same purpose in mind to put Jesus forth to the community. Okay, second, let's look at the same humility. This is verses three through four. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. One theologian says that love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. If you have any type of close relationship, you know that to be true, right? You think about the other's Interests before you think about your own, almost by instinct, right? You hear a crying baby and you go to them to try to, to try to help. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. If you have a small child, you go and run after the child if they need you. Same thing if you have a family member that's in dire need, you don't really think about your own interest, you run to them. This is what he's saying. Love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. So what the Apostle Paul is getting at in this passage That we're to think of others before we think of ourselves. And you know, Paul, in this text here, he actually starts with the vice, the opposite to humility. He starts with selfish ambition, right? Selfish, one theologian says this, selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness. Self-interest at the expense of others. Primarily dictates values and behavior. That we see this from the beginning of time, right? When Adam and Eve sinned against God, right? They essentially said, God is a liar. I'm going to believe that, that God is a liar and I want to become like him. That they were self interested in becoming like God. Conceit in this verse is similar to puffing oneself up or empty glory, making yourself look big. So here, Paul is saying, don't be self-interested, focused on yourself, giving yourself glory, puffing your chest up and making yourself look big, but rather, humbly think of others more significant than yourselves. We see, from the beginning of time till now, that humility is a uniquely Christian value, that we see it demonstrated specifically by our Savior, Jesus Christ but now we need to understand what humility is, right? Humility, often we can go to it and think, oh, it's, it's self-deprecation. It's self-loathing. I hate myself, right? But at its core, humility is not you focused. It's others focused. So when, it, when you think about self-deprecation, self-loathing, self-hatred, it's still self-focused, right? Humility, then, is a proper understanding of, of oneself first before God. Thinking about God first, right? Understand that you are the created. He is the creator. Secondly, we look to Jesus in seeing what he has done for us. That he has humbled himself to the point of death for you and me. And if you're anything like me, when you look inside your heart to who you actually are, not the person that you show up looking like on a Sunday morning or lunch with me in the week, okay? Okay. Or how I look towards you. But if you look inside, you realize, I am unworthy of that love. I am unworthy of someone coming to die for me. So you look to Jesus, and you see, but he still did it. He is the worthy one. He is the one who came, lived a perfect life, died, and beat my sin by resurrecting on the third day. So when we focus upon him, we see that he was humble to the point of death. This should lead us to do the same for others, focusing on the needs of other people. Because if Christ did that for me, I am free. I am free to live for other people because what else do I have to gain but I have everything I need in Jesus if you think about humility, this idea has really been helpful for me. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's putting the priorities and needs of other people above your own. Remember, it's this sense-then structure that we're working in in this passage. Since you have received comfort in the work of Christ and you have hope for the future— Then think of others before yourself. Since Christ is your Savior and you have received His love into your hearts, then think of the interests of others before yourself. When you look deep inside and you see that your biggest need is met in the work of Christ, and you focus on that, these interests that seem so important, like my extra piece of ham that I really want, seem less important right? So we got to gaze upon Jesus and gaze upon our unworthiness for his love. And we're doing this all to grow closer to Jesus and to be unified in his work on our behalf. A recent movie about 10 years ago came out uh, called The Blind Side. And in this movie it's a wealthy family who drives past this teenage boy that's on the road and it's cold and raining outside, and the mom asks the son, who's that boy? And the boy, he's about eight or nine, says, oh, that's Big Mike. He goes to the high school down the road. And we see that this movie is all about about giving this boy purpose, giving him love and care when he has not received it before. We see that this family gives Big Mike his own room where he receives his first ever bed and the mom, who's played by Sandra Bullock, he enrolls him in football, studies with him on the weekends. And when his mom is at lunch with one of her wealthy friends, she's asked, is this one of, another one of your charity cases that you're just taking on for a little while? And in the movie, it shows that her mindset had changed, right? Her, the mother takes it upon herself at that moment to pour everything she has in her life and her family's life into this boy, Work on his grades, his social skills, athletic ability, and this family is fully committed to the flourishing of this young boy. And honestly, this wealthy couple is looked down upon by their people around them, their peers, for doing this. And it costs them financially, it costs them emotionally, gives up they give up their own desires, their own time for this boy. And at the end of the movie, they see all he, what the boy has done. And one of the, again, one of the wealthy friends kind of realizing that she was wrong comes up to Sandra Bullock's character and says, you're changing that boy's life. And she says, no, he's changing mine. And I would say that while Sandra Bullock's character was dedicated to the bigger picture, this boy succeeding in the same way we're called to do the same thing to see the bigger picture, the advancement of the gospel, the flourishing of people around us, to see their hearts saved by Jesus. And it did cost this family something, and it will cost you something. It's not easy. I may have given this illustration before, but it's like a, a new pair of shoes that hurt the first 20 days that you wear them. Right, It wears in over time, and that's often how this kind of stuff is. You've got to lay it down, and it hurts, and lay it down. Or like running, right? It's like I, I'm trying to run more these days. I'm I like, get on the treadmill, and this guy's yelling at me to run faster. I'm like, I don't want to run faster. This hurts, right? But 20 days down the line, I'm running faster. But it, it takes that hurt initially. That co- It costs you something with the bigger picture in mind, right? The advancement of the gospel, See, the Apostle Paul here is calling the church to see their primary purpose of gospel advancement and being of the same mind together about that. So he's saying, don't allow small agreements to get in the way of broader, more important issue. And the thing is that often when we give these things up over time, we look back and realize, oh, that wasn't a huge deal. That wasn't a big issue for me to give up. I'll give you a personal example. It's not in my notes, and this is probably where I get in trouble, right? But early in marriage, I was very hung up on picking the restaurant. Me, Dawson. I'm going to take you out, wife. But I'm going to pick the restaurant. That was a big thing for me, right? And we got in arguments, and she's so humble and caring that she didn't really care. But I was so dead set, and if, if I ever ne- didn't get my way, it would like ruin the night, right? And now, as the Lord has broken me down over many years, I realize that picking the restaurant's not a huge deal. Right? And this is a small thing, but I look back and say, it was such a huge thing back then for me. And that's how often this type of stuff is. When it's such a huge deal, it's really high up on the cone of certainty, we need to address that and say, should it be up there? Because probably it needs to come down. And when it does come down, you'll find yourself changed, more focused on the advancement of the kingdom and less on the kingdom of yourself, Right? Like the quote from the movie, you're changing that boy's life, no, he's changing mine. I would say the same thing about the gospel. You press into the gospel, you think, oh, you're doing good gospel advancement. You look into your own life, the gospel's changing me. That's what you're gonna see. Is that When, when you pour into Jesus, He just he grows into you because he has first loved us and he's called us to strive after that. We're gonna look, verse five is actually a Kind of a teetering between verses one through four and six through ten. It's the transition verse between those two sections where he's calling the church to unity. And then in verses six through ten, he lays out what humility actually looks like in Jesus. Okay. So this is a transition verse between these two sections. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying for the church here, you already have this mind. You already have been given this in Jesus. You already are united together. Whether you want to believe it, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is already true. So what he's calling us to here is he's saying, act like who you are. That you are united to Christ. But you know that each one of us, there will be division and there will be conflict. But my hope for us is that we always press on and look to Jesus, not out of our own will, but we lay down our will so we can look to what Jesus has done for us. Because in, in this uh, preceding verses right after this, I'm going to read them for us. Paul continues to explain how the people are united by Christ's very work. And they explain that. And this is what we're going to leave here. Because I know that you and me, in a series like this, and even in a text like this, it's very imperative heavy, which means it's calling us to lots of action, which I think is good and helpful. But I don't want you to walking out the door today and say, man, I really need to do this but I want you to gaze upon Jesus and say, look what he has done for me. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. Our text from today, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on 6 to 10 to explain what Jesus has done for us. In verse 6, he says this, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he had emptied himself. Should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory the God the Father. The thing is for you and me, Church. We're calling. There's a call here in Philippians two, the verse five verses, for us to be united in Jesus, for us to humble ourselves. And if you're anything like me, you look to the next week and say, "I will. I'm going to strive to press into Jesus and to do this better." But I know in the next seven days I will fail that's when we look to the Savior who never will fail. Because Jesus, we saw in this text, he emptied himself so you and me can be made free through his grace. That Christ was of one mind with the Father. He did the Father's will despite the great cost to him. Christ did nothing from selfish ambition, but rather he looked to the needs of his people, you and me. Christ thought of the interests of the people that he loved so dearly rather than his own when he laid down his own life. So let us, you and me, church, look upon the, the beauty of this humble servant, Jesus Christ, God's very son, who took on the wrath that we deserve, but death n- did not hold him. He raised on the third day that we may be free to follow him. Let's pray together. God, what a comfort it is to gaze upon your beauty. God, we do have that in your son, Jesus. We have what the text told us today, encouragement in him. We have comfort from your love. We participate by the spirit. And Father, as we come to your table today, we pray that you would nourish us in this time, that we would come humbly, humbly, remembering that we are unworthy to even approach this table, but it is only by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, by his absorbing the wrath that is due to us and his raising on the third day to beat sin and death once and for all is that we can ever come to this table. Father, we need you here. Pray that you'd come before us now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.